0: Well, we've come to a section, a new section in the book, The Letter uh, of Second Corinthians. And uh, several times throughout this series, as we've marched our way through this this letter, uh, we you know Ben has paused to give a little bit of context, historical, situational context, because uh, when you when you read this letter, number one, it can seem to jump around a little bit because Paul's writing into a specific occasion. Um, and also, if, if, if you don't have the, the context in mind, you'll feel like he's jerking you around. Because all of a sudden, he went from uh, chapter 7, uh, 6 and 7, and talking about the repentance of the church in Corinth and their godly sorrow that led them to repentance and uh, their, their restoration and their fellowship with Paul. Um, and now he's switching gears, um, and he's talking about this collection. He never uses the word money. He's he's kind of walking on eggshells, but he's dancing around this theme of this collection that he actually began uh, years before. He had uh, when, when he was commissioned by the apostles in Jerusalem, he recounts this in Galatians chapter 2. He says that when, when they gave him the right hand of fellowship and they acknowledged that Paul, who used to be this persecutor of the church, was in fact an apostle, and that God was sending him to the Gentiles, they gave him the right hand of fellowship, and they said, only please remember the poor. And Paul says in Galatians 2.10, that's the very thing I was eager to do. And what they meant was not the poor generally, but the poor in Jerusalem. Because those, those Jews who had become followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, who lived there and remained there after Pentecost for years now, uh, their lives had been Disrupted. And it wasn't an easy place to be a Christian, so they were impoverished, and Paul was exhorted to remember them as he goes forth into the into the world, as he goes and he reaches Gentiles with the gospel. Don't forget us back here in Jerusalem. So Paul had begun hatching this plan at some point along his travels, where he thought, well, number one there's this there's this present issue in his letters uh, that you can you can sense where there's this tension between Gentile and Jewish Christians. And uh, they had brought a little bit of resolution to that in the Jerusalem Council, which was in AD 49. You can read about that in Acts 15. But nevertheless, there still were these tensions in the churches um, in the different parts of the, the Mediterranean world. And so Paul was all about reconciliation. He preached this gospel of reconciliation that there's one people of God, not two people, one people, and that the Gentiles had been grafted into the spiritual lineage of the true sons of Abraham, which were those who had put their faith in Christ. And he thought, wouldn't it be a uh, a magnificent gesture if the Gentile Christians around the Mediterranean, um, out of love for their Jewish brothers in Jerusalem, pooled together their resources? And we could deliver a big, fat bag of shillings or whatever they had. Not shillings. Um, whatever it was they used. Denarii. Um, they they were going to help them. And so Paul, you know, everywhere he went in his missionary travels, well, most places he went, he was a tent maker. He didn't accept any payment or any support from the people that he was ministering to. Um they offered to pay him. It was standard. When you had an itinerant you know, preacher or somebody that was coming, a rhetorician, you would pay them and be entertained by them and consider their philosophies. Paul would never accept that. He didn't accept it in Corinth, although they offered it to him. So he had, he had set this precedent of, I don't want your money. But now, uh, at the end of first, his, his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 16, he starts talking about this collection that he had mentioned to them in person set aside a little bit of money on the first day of the week over the next year, and when I come back and I visit you, I, if it's if it's if it's deemed appropriate, I'll accompany whoever is taking that back to Jerusalem. So that had been at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We know that between that letter, where Paul had answered a bunch of questions and he had started to put down some some factions and fighting in the church and he had corrected them and he had explain to them how to think about their gifts, which apparently they excelled in, but they, there wasn't a lot of love. After he had left, for, left, Ephes, uh, left Corinth, he was in Ephesus. He gets word that there's these issues. They send him a letter. He writes his first letter to the Corinthians. Then apparently, and this is the, the context that Ben has mentioned in previous sermons, um, there were some false teachers that showed up. Uh, who reviled Paul. Um, Paul came back to Corinth. He was highly dishonored. We don't know what the event was, but we know that something shameful happened. And rather than exercising his authority as an apostle right then and there, which he could have, he left. And then he followed up with a scathing letter, letter, which fortunately brought the Corinthians to repentance. That's what he's talking about in chapter 7 is their response to that letter, and how he is so thankful to God that they were moved, that, that their faith was genuine, that their faith was genuine because they have repented collectively of their rebellion. So now, after all of this tension that's been in their relationship, it's been going on, who knows, six months to a year maybe, he's transitioning back to this, 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 uh, this collection. They had, a year previously, said, we're eager to do this. And then there was all the fallout. But now, he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So Corinth is in Achaia, southern Greece. Macedonia is northern Greece. The churches in Macedonia are Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Not far from Corinth, not far from Athens. But he says, we want you to know about the grace of God with these churches up in the north, in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That is the saints in Jerusalem. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus, who's probably the one that carries this letter to Corinth, we urged Titus that as he had started, because Titus had been the one that delivered the scathing letter as well, and he reported back to Paul their response, how they repented. We urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Notice he doesn't call it this collection of money. He doesn't call it this offering. He calls it an act of grace. But as you excel in everything, remember the Corinthians? They're great. They can speak in tongues. They can prophesy. They have words of wisdom and knowledge. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, and knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. He says, I say this not as a command. I'm not commanding you. I'm not commanding you to give these alms. But to prove by the earnestness of others, that is by comparison to the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. Here's what genuine love looks like. Look at what the Macedonians have done in their extreme poverty, and in their affliction, they have given beyond their means, begged for the for the privilege of doing so. They, they were begging to be benefactors to the saints in Jerusalem. It may be that they were just as needy, but they insisted that they participate because they thought, as Paul explains later, it's only fitting that we who have received the spiritual blessings of the Jews in Jerusalem would share our material blessings back with them. This is not a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We'll come back to that in a moment. Let me me clarify in case it needs clarification. This passage, which is about giving, the giving in this passage has nothing to do with tithing. This is not one of those sermons. Um, But the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing terribly much. So I did want to offer a little bit of instruction on it. Um, Just because occasionally it's good for the church to be reminded. What is tithing and why do we do it? So this is an aside. This is not rooted in this passage, although there's probably some applicability. But a a brief word, a brief aside on tithing. Um, Tithing uh, predates the law. Tithing is not something that was established by the Mosaic Law. It was codified in the law in multiple places, beginning in Leviticus. But prior to the giving of the law in the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai, tithing was something that was done just after the fall, when Abel tithed of the first fruits to the Lord, he gave the best of his livestock to the Lord. And then Abraham, when the Lord delivered Abraham's family, he tithed a tenth of everything to the priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek. You can read about that in Genesis 14. Later, when God. Uh, affirms reissues and affirms his promises to Jacob as Jacob is fleeing to Laban and God says, I'm going to give all the promises that I gave to Abraham and then I reiterated them to Isaac. I'm going to give them to you. Jacob responds and says, if you will do that for me, Lord, I will give you a full tenth of everything that you give to me. Um, and then you get, several hundred years later, the codification of tithing um, in the law. In the New Testament, Jesus mentions tithing um, while the people are still under the old covenants. He says, you should have kept your tithing, but you should also practice mercy and justice. Tithe your mint and cumin and dill. You should, you should maintain that because it's lawful, but you should also understand what is the heart that God cares about. And then the Abraham episode is brought up once again in the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, Uh, The author of Hebrews, I think it was Paul, might have been someone else. The author of Hebrews says something really interesting. He says, Abraham, in tithing to Melchizedek, was showing that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham and that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the priesthood that came from Abraham's loins, meaning the Aaronic priesthood because Levi was a a great-grandchild or, yeah, a great-grandchild of Abraham. So, this principle of tithing in the New Testament, you, you might say would be, we tithe to our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus, just as Abraham did. We participate in that same honoring of God's high priest. Um, tithing is not a law. It's never compulsory in the New Testaments. It's not something that, is, that has the teeth that it did in the old covenants. But it is a holy standard, a bare minimum that the scriptures set. You can't read the Bible and come away thinking, God probably doesn't care if I tithe or not. It's how we honor him. So, that's all I'm going to say about tithing today. But this passage isn't, the giving in this passage isn't about tithing, it's about alms. Alms, a collection for the poor. Um, And it was necessary, as I said, because the church in Jerusalem was impoverished. And it was necessary also in Paul's mind as an act of love from the Gentile believers to the Jewish believers. It was a demonstration of their unity. But fundamentally, this passage isn't even about almsgiving. It's just about giving. It's just about acts of grace, which is what Paul calls this giving. Because he's treading on eggshells. So he just calls it an act of grace. He says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He calls what the Macedonians are doing an act of grace. And then, instead of just stopping at using the Macedonians as an example, he's not just stirring them up by way of competition to the Macedonians. He roots it all in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which they know of. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you in his poverty might become rich. This sounds very similar to what Paul wrote to the Philippians, a church in Macedonia. Remember when he says this? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was rich did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He became poor. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ left the riches, the honor and the glory that he had as the Son of God in the heavenly places for all of eternity, innumerable festive gatherings of angels proclaiming his glory. He left it and became poor. Took on the, the poverty of human flesh took on the poverty of our world, went all the way to the bottom, the dregs of that barrel of poverty, crucified so that we, through his poverty, could become rich. In him are all the riches of God. In him are all the promises, all the blessings that God has promised. They are found in Christ. And because he was willing to identify with us, We, by our faith in Him, by being united to Him through that faith, get to share in those riches. Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The meek shall inherit the earth. All things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. It's one thing to say it, I can't make it sink. I can't even make that sink into my own heart. You know what I mean? You you, you can assent to these things, you get it. But we can't make it fit right into that place where it, it does what it did to the Macedonians. They were so moved by the grace of God in Christ that they gave beyond their means. Begged for the privilege. In fact, they called it a grace. It says uh, in verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is the same word that he uses elsewhere for grace. It would be a grace if we could so participate in, in, in the life of Jesus. If we could have this opportunity to act like Jesus. We're not even rich, we're just poor, but we're willing to become more poor to bless those who's who have given us the spiritual blessings as i was asking the lord what what is it from this passage that you you have for us because i think i think i was having a hard time hearing anything because we i think we're doing better than the corinthians were frankly uh they had a lot of issues, and um, when I, from my vantage point at least, thinking about this church collectively, when there's a need, this church rises and meets it, uh, and not just from within the body. I think of our uh, Rwanda fundraiser that we did a few months ago. Um, I think about when we give alms during Advent or during Lent. I think about when, when this church is called upon. Uh, Administratively, we give, you know, 50% of the church's income is given away. Um, but then also individually, it seems that this church rises up. So there's not there's not really an opportunity for me to stand in the same spirit of Paul with a church like the Corinthians and say, look at how amazing these guys are. Now individually, maybe the Lord is speaking to you. Maybe individually, there's some conviction. You might have seen, uh, for example, our brother Cedric's story. Was was it in Christianity today? Um, I haven't read through it yet. But a lot of people are going to read that story if they haven't already. And this is the same thing you might experience when you read a biography of some incredible saint, um, such as Cedric. And you go, man, I would love to have a life characterized by the grace and the commitment to Jesus that that person does, right? And their example, it stirs you up. Paul wanted the example of the Macedonians to stir up the Corinthians, who were blessed in every way, visibly uh, above the Macedonians. And yet, Paul was not sure if their love was genuine. Except that he was confident that they were, but he didn't want to be embarrassed if he showed up and the collection wasn't ready. Hence the letter. Prove that your love is genuine. If you have received grace, the telltale sign of receiving grace is that you give grace. And notice this. It's not a command. Paul knows that this collection this offering, it can only be born of grace. There's no exaction happening here. You know He's not showing up and pestering them and threatening them or holding over their prior promise over their head. He's, like I said, he's kind of treading around this issue and hoping that God's grace is real to them so that they are moved to participate in this act of grace. And the same is true for us. Back to Cedric, Cedric's received a lot of grace, and if you know him, uh, and you've you've know if you know him personally, or even if you know him from a distance just by reading his story, you know he is a man overflowing with grace because he has received it. So, as I ask the Lord, what is it that what is the that you have to say to this people from this passage this morning? It would have been nice in some ways if it just perfectly lined up with the situation. That would have been bad in other ways. So I'm thankful for that. And and here's I guess here's where I where I've come to. This is what I feel like the Lord wants to say. Or maybe does that He wants to ask? Because Paul says, "You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ." Um, and I think the question that I dare to ask is, do I know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, Do you know it recently, maybe? Do you know it very personally? Do you know it with fear and trembling? Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ for you by name? By looking at your life, this is scary for my own self. By someone looking at your life, would they say that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor? Psalm 27, or excuse me, Proverbs 27, verse 19, says, "As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man." Whatever is in a man's heart is going to come out. It's going to be reflected in his countenance. It's going to be reflected in his life. You can say something else is inside, but a tree is known by its fruit. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? I think that I I know most of you, and I would say yes. Yes, you do. But I will also say that you and I, every one of us individually, And by household and collectively, would do well to know it more. And I know that the Lord wants us to know it more. So I want to invite you to seek the Lord with me. And this is an invitation for the whole church. As we head into this fall, it's right around the corner, it's a month away. Uh, we're going to be doing what we've been doing the last several years where we commit to reading the Scriptures together in varying sized groups. Could be two to three people. Could be bigger. But reading through the New Testament together. Uh, the New Testament is the New Covenant. It's the letters and the it's the Scriptures that are written to the New Covenant people of God and for for the New Covenant people of God. They are full of grace. Um, the Macedonians knew the grace of God. When Paul wrote to one of those churches, uh, the Thessalonians, the 1st Thessalonians, he says this We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. When we came to Macedonia and we preached, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul evangelized the Thessalonians right before he went to Corinth. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then he was down to Athens and then Corinth. All on the same journey within a matter of months. In the Thessalonians, it had produced fruit because they hadn't just been exposed to the word. When Paul came preaching, the preaching was accompanied in the power and the Holy Spirit and it wrought full conviction in them. They knew that this was the grace of God. And so he says this to the Thessalonians. He says, finally, brothers, this is chapter 4, verse 1 of First Thessalonians, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, and this is what, this is what I would ask of you, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You're already doing it do so more and more. I don't feel a need for rebuke. I don't have that sense, so I'm not offering rebuke. I just want to offer an exhortation and encouragement that you would do so more and more, that you would participate in the grace of God. That certainly touches money, but it also touches everything else. God's grace became incarnate in Jesus Christ. And his grace in our lives will become incarnate in every part of our lives. What we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our bodies. But what we need for it to truly be grace, not to be striving to drum up, you can't drum up grace. Grace that comes from, from Christians is grace that they've received first. So what we need is to experience God's grace. We cannot manipulate that. We can't pull a lever. We can't do a certain formula or even a proper liturgy to move God's grace into our hearts where it touches us and produces acts of grace. But what we can do is we can put ourselves in the way of his word, which he says will not return void. And as we put ourselves in front of his word, we can pray that it would come in power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction so that others might come to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through us. So I will appeal to you uh, once more as the invitation to participate in this scripture reading, and it's a lot of scripture reading this fall, Put yourself in the way of God's word and ask that you would know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.